And welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the show dedicated to stories told to the medium of sound, showcasing the diversity and vitality of modern audio theater. You hear your news, reviews, discussion, and of course, stories. And I'm your host, Fred. Well, today we take one last swagger with Jack, with a uh, discussion with the two people most responsible for the creation of Jack's Last Call. Got uh, playwright Pat Fenton and seasoned audio producer Sue Zuh, Media Productions on the line. Uh, we talk about the stories of the story and tastes of Kerouac, some rambling stories, uh, what it's like to produce an audio, what made this particular production come together, uh, stuff like that. It's a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy. All right. Uh, well, I'm, uh, I have the pleasure of welcoming Pat Fenton, the playwright, and uh, Sue Zizza, the executive producer and director of Jack's Last Call, a uh, wonderful new uh, audio theater piece we've uh, heard the past couple of weeks, uh, talking about Jack Kerouac's uh, the last days of his life, um, his time um, spent in New York uh, just before he headed down to um, St. Petersburg, Florida. Um, Sue, Pat, welcome uh, to Radio Drama Revival. Thank you very well, thank much. You. Um, yeah, it's it's such a pleasure. Uh, yeah, it's such a pleasure to have you. And um, you know, I'm both interested in the writing side of this piece, and then also the the technical side. Um, but I'll start with you, Sue. Um, for most people, hopefully, they don't need an introduction, but. Um, you know, you've had quite a long career in audio. Do you want to just, uh, you know, give the, the brief uh, summary for people who uh, just want to get a sense of uh, who you are and what your work's consisted of? Sure. Uh, for more than 25 years now, I've been a producer in the public radio, audio drama, as well as the commercial audio book, film, and television industries. I resigned my position with the National Audio Theater Festivals. I was having a dinner conversation with a dear friend, and I said, I'm really looking for something interesting and different and new to produce. It's been a long time that I have been overseeing the training of young artists, new artists, uh, but I'd really like to get something in the door that I could really get my teeth into, that I could really, you know, jump back into the industry with in a in a big way. And uh, then one day, a few weeks later, there was a knock on the door, and I met Pat Fenton. Oh, great! Well, see, that's going to be my next question: was how how this got started. So, um, Pat, what led up to that uh, knock on the door? That's basically, uh, Fred. Uh, I had. Uh... I'm basically, I, I don't know if there is such a title, but I'm like, a, I consider myself like an Irish working class writer and came from um, Blue Collar, Brooklyn, in a section called Windsor Terrace. Uh, I grew up about three blocks away from the writer Pete Hamill, who had a strong influence on me. Um, so I've been, I've been writing a long time. I'm a freelance journalist doing that type of, you know, blue collar type writing, you know, mood pieces, you know, hanging out in bars and you know, covering them. And I wrote this Kerouac play like some time ago. And uh, I've written uh, stuff in the New York Times on Jack Kerouac and for Newsday. And I've I've literally like covered his whole life in a forgotten part, a forgotten part of his life in Ozone Park, Queens, which a lot of people are not aware of. So I wind up 50th anniversary of On the Road comes around, uh, you know, was it last year, I believe. And Kerouac hung out in a bar in Long Island called Gunter's in Northport, Long Island. It's a, a bar court in a time warp. It's a blue-collar bar owned by Peter Gunter, who knew Jack Kerouac very well. He's still uh, you know, around, certainly, Peter running the bar. And I called Peter up, and I knew Jack Kerouac's last night in Northport. That was the last time he was up east. Uh, he went with his mother down in Florida. She kind of pulled him out of the east try to get him away from drinking. It didn't work. Uh, he died five years later, drank himself to death. But his last night in the East 
was up in Gunter's Bar, was in, in uh, Nordport. So I called Peter up and I said, I just want to go out there for the 50th anniversary. Uh, I want to set up a mic, read from this play I got uh, about Jack Kerouac and take some questions. Enters Ed uh, Dennehy, who, an actor who's a very talented director, actor, friend of Sue's. Somebody told me about him. That's what opened the door. They said, you should talk to Ed Dennehy. He could probably put up a whole reading with actors. We go ahead with that. He brings this great team of actors, uh, Jack O'Connell, uh, uh, I don't want to forget anyone, Drew uh, Kyle. Uh, he has uh, Sue Dennehy, his wife. Uh, and, you know, they we go out to do the play. Two volunteers, knowing Ed, to do the sound on it and music and does this wonderful production of that. And that's how I got to meet her. She heard it and said, you know, she approached me and said, I think you got a radio drama here. We could work on this and we could turn it into that. And that's how it was born. Sure. And were you responsible for uh, actually uh, doing the adaptation of that piece um, from theater to audio theater? Oh, well, I, you know, I wasn't. No, I was not. Uh, Sue was. But what I was, I mean, what I did is we had the play. If you looked at the play, Fred, my actual play, that I've done on the stage. We've done it. I just recently had a six-night run-up in Boston, which was a separate thing I was basically doing on my own. Um, and the play we did in Gunther's Bar was not a radio play. Sue came along and said, Pat, if you would do this, you know, she gave me a lot of, you know, suggestions that would adapt it to radio. So um, she did all the, she did all the heavy lifting, the technical radio stuff that, Frankly, I'm not familiar with, although I, I, I'm a really big radio fan. Um, but I basically was there for her whenever she would call, and she would say, I need this, I need a line there, and I, I would do it. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so, um, Sue, do you want to remark on your approach, um, you know, towards uh, towards a- adapting it, and then um, ultimately your approach towards um, producing it and directing it? Because uh, there are some pretty interesting things that happen with this piece in the sense that it has... Um, all this great original music um, that it was recorded on location. Um, you know, how how did you, you know, how did you make start to make those decisions that made the piece come out the way it did? Well, first of all, when we produced it for Gunther's Bar under Ed Dennehy's direction, and he selected Drew Kyle to be Jack and a number of other regional artists, Jack O'Connor, Sonia Tannenbaum to play the. Yeah, day. Sonia Tannenbaum. I want to mention her by the way. She was a great. Mirror, and I left. I forgot to mention it by accident. I don't want to let that pass. She played. Sure. She's the best. She played Mamir, Kerouac's mother, and I've seen four different productions, and she is the best. So that's all I want to add. So when when Ed had come in with the stage piece, it very much was a monologue with a few moments where other characters entered the the the. Jack's Jack's world, but for the most part, the piece was a monologue. And so when I was helping Ed Dennehy to put music from the time period or suggestive music of the time period together to uh, be able to have this staged reading with a little bit of sound and a little bit of music, the more I heard the piece, the more I could hear possibilities in it as a piece that was not on the stage but on the radio stage. And so after the piece ran at Gunther's for the 50th anniversary in September of 
2007, um, I got a call from the engineer that I had been working with on the project, and he said, you know, Sue, I, I know you're looking for something interesting. Why don't you go back and read this Jack Kerouac piece again? I think you could do something with it. So I sat down, and I really listened to it instead of read it. And I called Pat, and I said, you know, in a lot of ways, the original bones of the piece, the original structure of the piece, is very much a monologue and very much taking place inside this individual's mind. Even though it's based on a real moment in Jack's life, there really is a tape recording of a party that Jack had for himself that a gentleman named Larry Smith was kind enough to share with Pat, and then Pat shared with me, so we could like voyeurs, listen to Jack's last party with his friends in Northport. And it gave me a lot of ideas as to how he uh, comported himself around his friends and what the space he was living in was like. And so the two things that I really took away from talking to Pat initially about Jack and also from listening to that tape and then having the wonderful opportunity to meet David Amram, who worked with Jack and composed the song Pull My Daisy, which opens and closes the piece and other things, um, I really began to understand how much Jack was a jazz fanatic and how much that kind of music spurred his creative being. So when we sat down, Ed and I, and after we had recorded the voice tracks, we began to layer in some of the sound. We weren't sure when I wrote, I'm going to turn the music up, and we got the sound effect of an antique 1960s turntable and all the rest of that. We weren't sure what piece of music. There are only two pieces of music in the play that Pat has written in that are directly referred to. There's a Mel Torme song, and there's also a piece by Hank Williams. But beyond that, the rest of the music was selected between Ed and myself to really give an image of a time period. And we were really trying to select music that underscored in a very positive way the emotions of the moment or carried the emotions to the next scene. And some of the things that we changed in terms of moving it from, for example, a stage production to a radio production is that while I very much liked in the stage production the actress Ed had picked, for example, for that reading at Gunther's, I didn't think that her voice would carry very well for the radio. So I went to an actress who's in her early 60s, and I said, you know, you're a much better young voice because you're going to carry all that emotion that I need carried there. This other actress, while she looks the part and in a live performance, she carries the part very nicely. In in an audio performance, I need an actress who's going to take this emotion of this 15, 16, 17-year-old girl and bring it out in a way that I don't believe this other actress really can. So I brought in a different actress. I hired Sue Ann Dennehy, Ed's wife, actually, to be uh, Jan Kerouac, and she's a much older woman playing a very young girl. And then in working with Sonia Tannenbaum and Jack O'Connell to play the Kerouac parents, Mamere and Leo, I asked them to bring in a little bit. I didn't want to go too much because it can be very hard to understand, but I asked them to bring in a little flavor of the French-Canadian background that they were from so people could understand that Jack really, in many ways, was an immigrant, and he he had that immigrant experience, his family, and, and what came with being an immigrant into the United States. 
And so whereas in the stage production, they didn't really address the French-Canadian in the same way. They more went for the look of the actor, the performance of the actor. Because I didn't have those visuals to rely on, I really worked with my actors very much, and I knew that Sonia and Jack were very talented actors who could bring that. They had, they had that kind of understanding. For them all, it was the first time they ever worked in front of a microphone. The only actor in the piece who has any audio experience is Len Cariou, who actually is playing Pat. He opens and closes the piece because he sets up... And he, he does a pretty good job, too, so... Uh... I'm only kidding around. He's won all kinds of what Tony Awards and everything. So yep, yep, Tony Awards, and he's been nominated for many other awards as well. So he was the only actor that I hired for the project that had any kind of radio experience because he's done a number of audio books over the years up in Canada, Manitoba, where he's from. They do a lot of radio drama. You know, he he trained at the CBC. So when I went to him and I asked him to do this play. He was very interested in because Kerouac is really from the same Breton roots that he's from, and he could bring you know that performance to the opening to to get people right into the right into it. So, in terms of technically, like I said, initially Pat, Pat's original stage production is so much a monologue that I was able to by adding sound design elements, doing a little recasting, and then really working with Pat to create specificity in the moment. You know what I mean? Because when we have something happening on stage, we can see it, but in an audio play, we have to explain it without explaining it. You don't want to hit the audience over the head and say, and then he walked to the door and opened it. You know, you want to hear the door open. So we we have a wonderful team here at Sioux Media Productions, David Shin, my master engineer, Butch D'Ambrosio, my sound effects artist. And, you know, we were able to work with these wonderful regional stage actors who had a long, long chemistry and history of all working together. So, you know, they brought their A games, we brought our A games, and we were able to put the piece together. Sure. Wow. Um, and it, and it, you know, all that comes through in the part. Um, and and Pat, what do you, what did you think of, you know, when you finally hear this piece that um, you envisioned one way, and now it's been um, gone to another medium? If you had that experience um, uh, in the past, uh, I haven't. Well, I have. I, you know, I, I am familiar with radio because I did a radio show. I, I still do it sometimes. I guess those. I had a, my own show for seven years on WGBB in uh, Long Island, and I basically. You know, I interview a lot of writers, and some nights I would just play music and do a whole show on an artist, and it could be anyone from Del Shannon to even Hank Williams. Uh, so I, but I never had that experience of seeing my work, you know, taken like what Sue did with it, and uh, I was very happy with it. And I can only uh, to round out kind of the play, the idea of the play, Fred, is that I should say that. This play originated on the idea. I was a freelance journalist. I still am down in New York. And I was doing a lot of things for Newsday and, and the New York Times. And I heard about this party in Northport, Long Island, that uh, I was actually doing a piece on Gunter's Bar. And while I was out hanging around in Gunter's Bar, and I was always doing, I had, been, I had done numerous stories on Jack Howard that I had published. I heard that this man, Larry Smith, that that he he had told me that Jack Carroway threw a party for himself, but only four people there, not four people, four or five, on his last night in Northport. Now, you would think that since he was, a tightly hated, by the way, king of the beats, 
uh, Beat Generation, he would have Allen Ginsberg and Lucy and Carr and William Burroughs, and none of them were there. He had long cut ties with them. He was hanging out with the local clam diggers in Nordport, the Baymen, um, just drinking in the bar down there and getting drunk, you know. And what happened was he chose this little party, and there's just four of the locals there. Larry Smith was one of them. For some reason, Larry Smith, who had never read any of his books, he had told me, decides to go home, and this is 1964. He gets this big old Grundig tape recorder with the reels on it, turns it on, and he tapes that last night. Now, Kerouac is literally talking about his whole life as he's drinking, and they're just kind of sitting and listening to him like an audience and kidding with him at parts. I I said to him, I'd love to hear the tape. He sets it up. I hear the tape. Two years later, I approached Newsday. I was sent over. I said, I want to get whoever's alive in that room, put that tape on again. We'll all have a few drinks and interview them. This is what I did. It was a cover story. It was cool. Last call. You know, uh, they shot it, you know, whoever was there. Now, what amazed me, like, hearing that tape is, like, Jack Kerouac was revealing, like, some of the most personal parts of his life there, saying that, you know, basically disowning the Beat Generation, a very conservative Jack Kerouac, if you will, came out. And the, the important thing I found out, Fred, when I did some research, there was about two weeks before that party, Neil Cassidy, who was still alive, had drove Ken Kesey's bus further all the way out to Nordport to pick Kerouac up, take him in to a party in Manhattan that Kesey was thrown, and to introduce these two big literary figures. Now, Kerouac's time had literally come and gone. There was a new generation coming in, you know, the hippies, the love generation. He reluctantly gets on the bus. They back in, He backs it into Gunter's. The two of them alone drive into Manhattan, and he's very upset with what he sees. He sees a bunch of merry pranks, as they call themselves, sitting on an American flag. He gets very upset. He said, you don't sit on a flag like that. He grabbed it, and he told him, this is what you do. You fold an American flag. Cassidy calms him down. Now, he realized at that point he left there. All of this is in the play. He realized his time had come and gone. So when I finally I got a hold of a tape, which Larry was very good to give me, I poured myself a glass of scotch one night, put on a headset, started taking notes, and I said, there's definitely a play in here. It's about not only Kerouac's last night in Northport, it's about a time coming and gone. There's a whole new generation coming in. And basically, that's what the play is all about, uh, and the, 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 the very rough relationship he has with his daughter, Jan, is all throughout the play, and it's, I show it by having three phone calls from her to him, and he drunkenly is telling her, you're a nice girl, but you're not my daughter. And I don't want to give the play away, but you've heard it, and then eventually, Kerouac does the right thing at the end of the play. And uh, so that's really what the drama is, and then Sue takes all of this, you know, and she comes along with this sound effects and music and uh, and really turned it into something wonderful, you know, and, and it, it's it's a very good piece for radio, and I'm very proud of it, and, and proud to have met her. And, and th- you know, you really summed up the heart of the piece very well, and I, and I, I guess I'll pose this to both of you, depending on uh, who may be inspired to uh, respond, but 
Um, you know, what has been the response? Have you heard from people who are, are loyal to a, you know, kind of that idyllic on the road Kerouac who find this piece disturbing or, um, you know, do you get feedback from, uh, you know, who, who are the kind of, what are you hearing are people's responses to this piece? Well, I, I'll say real quick, if I if I can, Sue. Like personally, I get a lot of response from it because I'm still involved with people uh, who knew Kerouac and stuff. I can always say John Sampas, who uh, who basically is the he's the, well he is the executor uh, of the Kerouac estate, um, and he basically has a say, you know, on anything that's published about Jack Kerouac. He when, when I had taken the play up to Lowell, which was a separate production from what me and Sue were doing, and it was well-received up in Jack's hometown. Twice we took it up there, and John Sampas came down, and I invited him down, and uh, he thought that it captured you know Jack very well. And then there's the other side of the coin. Uh, you, some people say that... Uh, you know they, you know they, they're they, they're watching the play and they're kind of very glad at the end that he finally does the right thing by his daughter. It's basically a response that a lot of people tell me that they understand a part of Kerouac that they never knew, and I think that's good. You know, uh, they understand that he was a great American writer, and and that's one of the things I told John Sampas and David Amran, who's a friend of mine, Jack Kerouac's friend. He does the same thing. He always tries to show Jack Kerouac, not as a beatnik, but a great American writer. And if it wasn't for people like uh, David Amran, he is really the person that, he's the forerunner for doing this. And he, he really should be on public radio for like one hour, just asking him about, you know, that whole thing with Kerouac. So it's been, it's a good response. Uh for a play that some people think are, is a very, very uh, melancholy type play. And in terms of the radio response, uh, we've had stations like WGBH in Boston pick it up. Uh, at WUNC in North Carolina, they were actually, the University of North Carolina was having an exhibit on the Beat Generation, and so they did an hour where they had uh, all the curators from the museums in the area coming in and talking about what was happening around the exhibit. And then the second hour, they preempted Terry Gross, and they put our play on. And this is a station that's a talk-only station that never does radio drama. And so we were very pleased, first of all, that the station's program director felt that it was very appropriate to what was happening in the community, that even though traditionally UNC does not do radio drama, he felt the piece really deserved an airing. And what made him most happy was that his audience, which is very loyal to Terry Gross, called up and thanked them for the fact that, yes, they missed an evening of Terry Gross, but this was, this was very interesting to them. And so that's been the basic response we've been getting. The stations like WMPG that have found time for Jack, and we're, we're almost at 50 stations now that have picked the piece up since April 1st when it was first released, uh, that have found time for Jack and have made time for Jack, have found that there's a real interest in their community. I mean, all of Alaska has heard Jack between the two stations up there that have taken it. And we've got a, a couple of emails from people saying, you know, wow, this is a guy who really traversed the United States, and we're very excited that, you know, we got a chance to hear about him. And I think, I think what Pat's play does is it does really illuminate a part of this individual that most people don't really understand, that Jack was not a simple 
one-dimensional figure. You know, when you look at him on the old Steve Allen show, he's drunk and he's making a fool of himself. Or when he's interviewed on television, he's always drunk. And when I was speaking to Peter Gunther, I asked him, I said, you know, what was Jack like? And he said before he had his four drinks, because he'd come in every night and start with four drinks right away, he said before he had his four drinks, he'd be a very shy man sitting in the corner that spoke to no one. Once he got a couple of drinks in him, then he had the ability to open up and speak to people and be charismatic and be charming and be but at the same time, you know, when we look back on him and we look at the the videos of him and all the rest of that, there he's a very polarizing character. People either really love him and are moved by his writing or they feel he was very misogynist and they're not. But I will say that the play has opened up a lot of conversation, and I think that that's what drew me to it, was that my my remembering of Jack Kerouac and On the Road was much more the misogynist. But in reading Pat's play, I found myself um, really feeling for this individual and recognizing that no one is one single thing, that there was a man who, who had the pain of birthing a whole new generation, the pain of birthing a child, and yet he didn't want the responsibility for either. He had all of this amazing creative talent inside of himself and ability to express himself like none had before. He, he in many ways, like um, uh, James Joyce, opened up a whole new style of writing, you know, and, and yet he, he had no belief in himself because he had this mother who, you know, was very controlling. He had this father who didn't recognize his talent. And so I think what Pat's play does is it shows yeah, us, it, it really shows us the complicated nature of all those relationships that he had and, and how it was that he came to be the person that he was, especially by the end of his life. Yeah. And, and Fred, for one quick thing, what it shows, too, is that you know, I wasn't trying to write a play that would be about on the road. I was trying to write a play about the 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 sad destruction of a great American writer, and, and he destroyed himself, unfortunately. And and I think we see that in the play. Uh, he had this amazing talent. I mean, uh, he was somebody. I I would say this: if if somebody really, if somebody said to me, "How do I really get to understand Jack Kerouac?" I would say to them, "To really understand Jack Kerouac." You and a friend of mine said, "Well, I just say I would say read his first book, The Town in the City, because The Town in the City is a a Wolfian book, like a Thomas Wolfe book that he was copying, you know, emulating Thomas Wolfe, and it's about this beautiful family, the Martin family, which is based on his low his low years. There's even a house up in Lowell they call the Martin House now, and if if you if you read that, you would see the innocence and also some beautiful writing in there." Now, uh, to me, there's other people, they, they just, you know, they figure they got to read on the road to understand them. But to really understand the innocence of that man, I would say read the town and the city. And, you know, and, and the influence, too, that is his brother's passing hat on him. I mean, you know, there's, there's, it's just a tremendous, it's a tremendous complicated individual there it's not it's not just a very one-dimensional person yeah and and we show that in the play like his brother gerard died when Kerouac was very young and uh, i'm just saying i'm thinking a guess at this i think gerard was about seven and i could be wrong but it was somewhere there and Kerouac is about four or five maybe and you know it's close to that range this this older brother died 
they treated him like a saint in Lowell. The nuns came down and they, they thought he was saintly almost because of the suffering he was. He suffered a lot before he died. Uh, and, you know, this this hurt Kerouac so much. And Kerouac spent a good deal of his life, in a sense, looking for another brother in Neil Cassidy. Now, I'm not someone that, you know, quotes, uh, you know, uh, psychology or makes examples of that. But it, in this case, it's pretty obvious. And, uh, you know, that hurt him all his life. And that's some of the things we show in the play. Uh, and, and by the way, Sue did. There's a scene where we have... Uh, there's the Stations of the Cross. You know, Jack Carrick was a Catholic. He was a very devout Catholic. So was his mother. Uh, and he would go, and I've been up there to Lowell. There's these Stations of the Cross that go into a grotto, a very shadowy place. I've been up there on rainy days, and Kerouac writes about that in his book, Dr. Sachs, and how he would go down there with his kid brother when the brother was okay, well, his older brother, when he was okay. And, you know, he he captures you know, all of that in there and in that, in his book, Dr. Sachs. So I put that into the play, him thinking about Gerard and the loss of Gerard. And Sue came up with this Catholic sort of, what would you call that, Sue, in the background where I, I felt well, like I was in there. There's a litany of prayers happening while there's also some Latin being read and we have a, a choir of, of angels in effect. You know, we, we created some music. For the most part, the music that we chose to use is original period music that Jack would have been listening to. We were very careful, but in a few places, like the graveyard scene, we we created music that was uh, specifically for you know that moment. You know, and and thinking about the things you've just said and and what kind of uh, is is really f- fun about this piece or what the tribute you've done you know for audio drama is that you know you you could have made this an hour long feature you know, NPR style feature with the, you know, different voices from Kerouac's life on the, dig up the people who are still alive, you know, interview them, maybe play portions of that tape. Um, or you could do a documentary with this, almost the same sort of format, you know, shows from establishing shots of Lowell and, you know, show Gunther's bar, you know, have, have interview those same kind of people. But yet here we've, we've done that, um, with audio drama and uh, I think accomplished a, a very different effect and, and a more unique effect, maybe, and, and said things you couldn't do if you had uh, chosen a, a nonfiction form. Do, do you guys agree with that? Oh, I yeah. do, certainly, and I you know, thank Sue for that. Yeah, no, and, and actually, for example, the, the telephone calls from Jan. I mean, historically, it's known that Jack and Jan had one, maybe two phone calls in their entire experience, you know, yeah, together. Yeah, two. Yeah, two. But but what Pat's done is he's taken the truth of those phone calls, and because he knew Jan Kerouac himself, Pat knew her in in the latter part of her life. He's taken his experience of Jan and how he knew her, and he's blended in a fictional way that into the party. She didn't call that night during the party at all, but the way that he blends it in, it allows us the opportunity to to really get a picture of that relationship, the relationship with his mother, his father, his brother. I mean, the only relationship we don't visit in this piece is the relationship with his sister Carolyn, who, you know, left the family pretty early, moved down to the Carolinas, and he would go and visit her. And she died young, too, as I recall, Pat, from heart disease. But, um, you know. She had a heart attack because her husband left her, actually. It was very sad. 
Yes. So, you know, uh, uh, his his sister Carolyn is the only person we don't really get to meet in the play, but we meet Neil, we meet Neil as a young man, we meet Neil as an older, you know, person coming back into Jack's life. So by taking all of those things that happened in those last few years and blending them together in a fictional way as opposed to a linear historical way, I think we're able to address the emotions of who this character was much more deeply than that NPR documentary style would have. Oh, absolutely. I I, I agree with what Sue's saying, Fred. And the, the one, any criticism I've heard of the play, like if someone would say to me, like, well, you know, I, I'd like to see more of Neil in there or something, or I'd like to see more of Jan. Any of that I hear, I always hear the same thing. It's like a mantra. Even if somebody has any criticism, they say, man, this is one of the fastest hours I've ever seen move, even when it's on the stage or on radio. On on the stage, it's an hour and 15 minutes. They always say, very fast moving, and it didn't bore me. And you know what? If that was my whole goal. I'm saying to people, I want to show you something about Jack Carraway. I remember, Fred, a long while ago, I talked to somebody in the city up at a playhouse, a 13th Street playhouse in the village, and we talked about me doing something up there. And I, I would, you know, I don't want to mention the person's name, but they, well, it wouldn't be fair, but they said to me, like, who was running this theater, well, you know what, we want you to tell more about the, like, a biography kind of Jack Kerouac. And I said, I don't want to do that. I'm not here to teach Kerouac 101. I'm not here to teach you about the beat generation. I'm here to, to show something that we showed on radio uh, you know, uh, about this man, a part of him that you may not know. And and that's what I I really uh, was very, very happy and fortunate to run into the talents that Sue had to join up with her to do this. Wow. Well, I, I, I thank you again both for the, you know, for the opportunity uh, to play this work. Um, you know, on, on MPG and um, uh, for a limited time on the podcast. And uh, and again, for you guys for taking the time um, to talk with me today. And I guess I've 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 you know heard so much from you. We could go on about Carrick for a bit. But do you, either of you have any any closing comments that you uh, really want to share about your piece? I, I'll let Sue close, but I would just like to say this briefly. Uh, I, I I just think uh, you know I'm happy that we kind of let the listeners know. That this was not the uh, this man was not the king of the beatniks. This man was a great American writer. He was up there with Sherwood Anderson, Faulkner, Hemingway, Steinbeck, and and I we kind of like that set at the end of the piece, just to kind of wrap up that that radio drama. Sure, sure. And, and I think Fred, the the only last comment that I would like to make is that um, I hope that the listening audience. Um, is transported to Jack's world and Jack's living room and Jack's, you know, experiences and has an opportunity to open up their opinion about him. You know, uh, as a 50-year-old woman, when the name Jack Kerouac first came across my desk, you know, I had my opinions because as a 19-year-old woman reading On the Road and all the rest of that, like I said, you know, there's, there's a lot of misogyny that was going on at that time. And to revisit this character now as an older woman, to recognize, because now I have, you know, 30 years experience and my own complex nature, that people are complex. People are not one-dimensional. And I really feel very proud of the fact that we were able to 
work with the music companies in the way that we were, that Sony and all the different companies, Verve, gave us the rights to use the music the way that they did, and that we were able to create the time period and the essence of what it was that made Jack who he was, which is why he affected us the way that he did. Oh, yeah, that that's very good. Th- thank you so much. It's, um, Yeah, and I, I think it's great because, again, I had the – you know, the Jack Kerouac um, experience, you know, as a high school student wanting, um, you know, aggrandizing that that on the road um, image, which, you know, as is made clear in the piece, is just, a, you know, a snapshot of um, a younger man that was maybe not even um, all that realistic. And, you know, to have a piece like this and, and to learn more about Jack and his uh, his life, his antics, um, all that, it's just, it's a really... Uh, you know, it, it just does what great um, art does is just, you know, enriches your, your experience and especially your appreciation of this man. So uh, thank you both. And that was the last call for Jack's last call. Comments of producer Sue Zizza, playwright Pat Fenton. Learn more about this extraordinary story at jackslastcall.com or go now to Radio Drum Revival to hear it. Uh, the podcast uh, per, part one will be down by the time you hear this, but part two uh, we'll be up for another week. Um, you can still license it, of course, through uh, PRX by the CD at zbs.org. Uh, next week, we've got the return of Final Rune Productions. That's uh, actually my own production company, and since in my infinite power, I have control over the programming of the show. I'm going to replay uh, Tales from Williamsville. It's a comedy of a small town. You find out how much uh, trouble a uh, drug dealer, a sleazy uh, drug dealer, grandmother, uh, uh, angsty teen, um, all get into. Uh, this is a lead-up for the next uh, piece I am producing right now, um, Waiting for a Window, about a man whose uh, lands, crash lands more or less on an island where no one seems to be able to escape. Uh, Waiting for a Window comes out in September, features uh, full cast, great actors, uh, field production, original music. It's uh, way, way beyond anything Final Rune's done to date. Very excited for that release, so I'm going to get you amped up starting with Tales from Williamsville next week. And of course, can't wait for more. Check out the blog and podcast at radiodramarevival.com. In addition to a handy link to subscribe to the podcast, you'll find all of the previous episodes, scattered bits of audio drama news, articles, and spectacular reviews as part of the Malleus series by Chris Duker. This week, uh, we're talking ballads, storytelling, in music, um, Stagali, great tale. Um, up there now and uh, while you're there why not leave a comment or two kick off the discussion Uh, you can also find us on itunes search for radio drama revival Uh, that wraps it up for this week Uh, Till next time keep your mind and your ears open thanks for tuning in and have a great week